and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thanks, Daniel. Good morning again, everyone. Well, good news. I don't think anyone got up and walked out as they heard that scripture reading. I was a little nervous about that because it's a tough one, huh? The past couple of weeks, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, it's a letter written by the apostle Paul to a church in the city of ancient Ephesus. And Ephesus was quite similar to Hong Kong in many ways. Um, So hopefully that makes it easier to connect what he's saying here with our lives. And the past couple of weeks, we've seen Paul start by just celebrating how amazingly good God is and celebrating all the amazing things that God has done to bless his people. And then last week, we saw that he took that praise and he turned it into a prayer a prayer that this church full of people who are already Christians, who already know God, would know God even more. And so today we're moving into chapter two, and this is most likely a continuation of that prayer from chapter one, that Paul is continuing to teach them about who this God is and what this God has done so that they can know God more. And Paul is talking about the amazing work that God has done in saving us here in this passage. And so what we're going to see today is that God saves us from ourselves so we can live for him. God saves us from ourselves so we can live for him. And there's bad news, there's good news, and then so what? But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us. We thank you that you show us who you are so clearly so that we can know you. And I pray that as we look at this passage today, that that we would know you more you would send your spirit to us so that we can know you more and follow you in the way that you want us to follow you. Thank you that you're so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, Paul starts off this passage with some really bad news. The first three verses of that passage we just looked at are possibly the like bleakest, darkest, most depressing three verses in the entire Bible. Paul is painting a picture of the human condition that is miserable, that is terrifying. If this is the first time you've ever set foot in church, you've probably listened to the start of the scripture reading and you thought to yourself, yeah, this is why I've never come to church before. And I am never coming back again because Christians are crazy. I mean, he starts with, and you were dead. Like who really believes that? 
How can someone living in the 21st century believe that people are dead just because they're not part of the same religion as you? It feels so backwards, doesn't it? But is it? See, according to the Bible, God is the source of life. All life exists because God spoke it into being and and life comes from him. Therefore, if you're separated from God, you're cut off from life. Your heart may still be beating, your body may still be functioning, but the thing that makes life, life is missing. Spiritually, if you're disconnected from God, you're, you're a zombie. The body is functioning, but there's nothing going inside that makes it life. This, that's what Paul is saying here. Because the default condition of the human heart is to want to be our own God rather than worship and serve God. We look at God, we look at his commands, we say, you know, it's nice that you think that God, but I... I'm pretty sure if I do things my way instead of yours, life will go better. That's our default condition from birth. And because of that, we're separated from God, the source of life. All of us start out spiritually dead, like a bouquet of roses. You know, ladies, your husband brings you some roses. They look so beautiful, but guess what? They're dead. They're cut off from their source of life. They still look alive, but it's only a matter of time before what's happening on the outside shows up to match what's already a reality on the inside. That's what Paul is saying here. If we're cut off from God, we're cut off from the source of life and it's only a matter of time until we start to show that on the outside. But here's the thing, none of us tends to see the world this way. None of us tends to think and live as if this is reality. Non-Christians don't see the world this way. Like people in our world, we think we're fine. I may have a couple issues, but so does everyone else. I'm, I'm no different than anyone else. And that's not just the situation today. That's been the situation throughout history. Like look back at Paul's passage right here. In these first three verses, as he's describing the condition of the spiritually dead, this miserable, horrible situation, you know what's missing there? Any type of emotional response. Like we're rushing headlong towards destruction and we're not afraid. We're not sad. We're not nervous or concerned about like, how is this journey going to end? We're just completely oblivious. Our spiritual deadless deadness leaves us so spiritually numb that we're incapable of even feeling the horror of our condition. Non-Christians don't think of themselves as dead because their spiritual senses are numb, are not able to function properly. And so they can't see the reality of their situation. But it's not just non-Christians that struggle to see the world this way. Christians also tend to not see the world this way, right? Like every Christian I know has non-Christian friends and family members and coworkers who we really like. And that's a good thing, by the way. They're nice people. They're friendly. They're kind. We like being around them. And it just feels so wrong and judgmental to say something so harsh about them. You're dead. You know how I know we struggle with this? Two reasons. One, I struggle with it too, and I just sort of assume I'm normal in that way. Number two, I see the way that so many Christians struggle with evangelism. Think about it. Why do you struggle with evangelism? We struggle with evangelism because we don't believe this is true. Deep down in the depths of our hearts, we look at the world around us and we don't believe that people who don't know Jesus are spiritually dead. Like if you see someone you love rushing towards the edge of a cliff and you believe that them stepping over the edge of that cliff is going to result in death, you're going to do literally whatever you can to stop them going over the edge of the cliff. 
You're not going to care about looking stupid. You're not going to care about them getting upset with you. All that matters is keeping them from walking over the edge of the cliff. If you see someone walking towards the edge of a cliff and you do nothing to stop them, it means one of two things. Either you don't love that person, you don't care if they die. I'm assuming that we have people we genuinely love. I'm, I'm not going to just jump to horrible negative conclusions there. But the only other possible solution is you don't actually believe that they're going to get hurt or, or damaged in some way by stepping off the edge of that cliff. You think maybe it's like this high and they might trip and look silly, but otherwise they'll be okay. If the average Christian in today's world really believed the non-Christian world around us, the people we love who don't know Jesus were spiritually dead, if we really believe that they're rushing towards a path that's going to end in death, people would have to fight to stop the church being powerful evangelists. The fact that the church as a whole struggles with evangelism, and it's not, I'm not saying anything negative about the bridge. I'm saying every church I've ever been a part of in any country or continent struggles with evangelism. The fact that we struggle so much says we don't believe this is actually true. Most Christians, most of the time in today's world, don't believe that non-Christians are spiritually dead. And yet Paul says right here, that's the default state of humanity. And in case you're tempted to look at this and, and think like, oh man, Christians are walking around with their noses in the air, thinking they're better than everyone else. That's actually the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. Look at the pronouns he uses. You, that is the Christians that he's writing to, and we, that's including himself in this. He's not talking about the world out there saying Christians were so much better than them, look down on them. He's talking about the Christians themselves. He's talking about himself and how we used to be so we can look up to God. The goal of this is not to look down on everyone else who's not a Christian. It's to look up to God because of the amazing things he has done for us. Every single one of us came out of the womb spiritually dead. And Paul shows us a couple things that are really important about the way spiritually dead people operate in this passage that we need to understand if we're going to respond properly to this passage. And the first thing we need to see is that spiritually dead people operate according to the course of this world. The world here is a technical term. It refers to the social system that's opposed to God. So the world is at work whenever people are dehumanized. The world is at work wherever racism and sexism are, are happening. The world is at work whenever people are enslaved. The world is at work whenever people are politically oppressed. The world is at work whenever systems drive people into poverty. The world is at work. And Paul is saying the default state of spiritually dead people is to align with the world and to live in ways that contribute to human oppression and suffering. Paul's saying the default state of spiritually dead people is to align with the world and to live in ways that lead to human oppression and suffering. And the extra scary part about this is the air, the, the world is the cultural air that we breathe. It's happening all around us and we're so immersed in it that we don't even realize that that's what's happening. And so it's so easy to just get sucked in, dragged in, to join in this harm and dehumanization without even realizing that that's what we're doing. We think we're doing something good, but we're actually not. We think we're being unique and different, but we're just following the course of the world. Let me give you an example to show what I'm talking about. 
So if you study history, one thing you'll find, societies where sex outside of marriage is common, prevalent, and societies where LGBTQ practices are common and encouraged, you know who suffers? Women and children. The physically stronger men take advantage, women and children suffer. Think about the attitude towards sex in our culture. These are the things that are celebrated, and yet they cause human suffering. The attitude towards sex that our culture encourages, it's one that dehumanizes. Think about the prevalence of pornography. If you're watching pornography, the people on the screen, you don't look at them and think, wow, this is a person made in God's image to be loved and cherished. You think, this is an object for my sexual gratification. It dehumanizes them. It, it takes away a fundamental part of what makes them human. Our cultural approach to sexuality is one that's leading to increasing divorce rates. And study after study shows divorce has huge negative impacts on children. The sexual attitude in our culture is one that harms human beings. And yet, if you, if you look at the changes in how cultural, culture has viewed sexuality over the past 60 years, let's say, since the start of the sexual revolution, what are the themes that come to the front again and again in the messaging? Be yourself. Express yourself. Value your choice instead of society's expectations. But guess what? When you choose to express your individual sexuality in whatever form you want, you're not truly being unique and individual. You're just doing exactly what society is telling you to do. You're being a conformist. You do whatever you want, that's great, but who's telling you what to want? You gotta take it a step deeper. We don't realize we are not truly as independent as we think we are. We're all shaped by the forces around us. We're shaped by what we see in TVs and movies. We're shaped by what we see on social media. We're shaped by the conversations we have with coworkers and the other parents at our kids' schools. They, they shape our expectations of what's normal and what's good and what's desirable. They lead us on a path and we think we're being unique. We think we're being individual, but so often we're just blindly following the way the world is telling us to live. And when we blindly follow the way the world is telling us to live, we contribute to bringing real harm to real people through our actions. Not because we're different, not because we're individual, not because we're unique, but because we've completely conformed to the world system that dehumanizes. And it's not just sex, like it happens across the board. One more example. How many people in our world have social media accounts because they sat down and really thought it through and did a cost benefit analysis and decided my life would be objectively better if I signed up for these different social media accounts? I don't know that I know anyone who has done that. Why do we get social media accounts? Because our friends have them? Because the celebrities we like have them? Because the world promotes it. And so we sign up too. And then we dump hours of our time and attention every single day into just scrolling through without ever stopping to think, is this a good way to use my time? And I'm not saying social media is objectively evil, but I'm saying, have you thought about what you're doing with it? Have you thought about the impact it's having? When we blindly follow the world, guess what's happening? Increasing levels of isolation and loneliness. Real people are experiencing real harm because of the ways of the world, the world system. And spiritually dead people blindly follow the ways of the world. We're all shaped and influenced by the world we live in. And when we follow the world, we live in ways that hurt the people God loves. 
See, the choice is not independence versus following Jesus. The choice is follow the world on a path to death or follow Jesus on a path to life. And Paul is saying spiritually dead people follow the world's path to death by default and end up living in a way that brings harm to themselves and those around them. So that's the first thing Paul wants us to see about spiritually dead people. The second thing is that spiritually dead people follow what Paul calls the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's talking about spiritual forces that are opposed to God, uh, probably personified specifically in what we would call Satan or the devil. We saw last week, well, first off, he's saying spiritual forces are real. There are spiritual forces out there that are opposed to God. And we saw last week, Jesus has conquered these forces. Jesus now has all authority over these forces. If we're Christians, we don't need to fear them. But at the same time, they're real and they're active in our world. And part of what makes them so scary is how subtle their work is. Like, I think when most people think of like Satan or demons doing things in our world today, the, the picture that comes to mind is something out of The Exorcist. Like you picture that girl's head like spinning around. You're like, ah, really deep voice, right? And like everything in the room shaking, like Satan can, we see in, in the New Testament, Satan can work in that way. But that's not Paul's concern here. Paul's concern right here is the fact that without Satan and his forces indwelling us like this, we just chose to do what Satan wanted anyway. He's saying spiritually dead people follow Satan. They see his lead and example, and they start doing the same exact things as he is doing. The primary problem for spiritually dead people isn't that Satan somehow comes in and overpowers them and holds them against their will. The primary problem is that Satan's ways are more beautiful to them than God's ways. And because Satan's ways are more beautiful than God's ways, they want to do what Satan wants them to do rather than what God wants them to do. There's a professor named Klein Snodgrass, and he says this about this passage. In the New Testament, the devil is not presented as the problem for which we need a solution. Our own sin and this evil age are. Moreover, to overemphasize the devil is to underemphasize Christ. In effect, this would-be ruler does not deserve our attention. A threat, yes, but a minor player. And this is the key. Paul does see a threat here, but he's more concerned that people have aligned with the ruler of this world than that they will be overpowered by him. He's more concerned that we just choose to align with Satan out of our own desire than that Satan somehow comes in and overpowers us. Now, to, to clarify, does this mean like spiritually dead people are going to be going out and like actively taking part in Satan worship on a regular basis? No, of course not. Uh, but here's an example of what this could look like. So if you look at the book of James, chapter three, James tells us that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are demonic. Did you know that? Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition are demonic. So here's what this means. If you have just an insatiable drive to get ahead and to prove yourself, and this drive to get ahead and prove yourself leads you to use others, to cut corners, to neglect your family, guess what? You're following Satan. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian, that you're living with selfish ambition that's in line with what Satan wants for the world, not what God wants for the world. 
One more example. Let's say you look at social media. You scroll through, you see your friend who has such a better life than you, and you want their life, and you get super depressed because you can't have their life. And so you put your phone away or keep scrolling, but you're just consumed by thoughts about how much better their life is than yours. And you start wishing bad things for your friend to sort of even the playing field. Or maybe you neglect your responsibilities because why does it matter? I'm never going to have a life as good as theirs anyway. What's happening? You're following Satan. You're living with bitter jealousy that comes from Satan, not from God. And, and even if you call yourself a Christian, you're living in line with the way that Satan wants you to live, not the way God wants you to live. And Paul is saying here that spiritually dead people, even when they do externally good things, they can't escape having hearts that are driven by Satan's desires. When we refuse to submit to God, it leaves us in a place where even our best deeds are corrupted by evil desires in our hearts because we're following the wrong leader. And this alignment with Satan, it's extra foolish because as we saw last week, Jesus has already conquered Satan and his forces. When we align ourselves with Satan, we're choosing the losing side in the battle. It's a bad choice. But again, we, realize, we, we do this without even realizing what we're doing. And that's what makes it so scary. And again, I realize we, we just don't like this category of spiritually dead. It's uncomfortable. We tend to use different labels. We'll call people mostly good, misunderstood, working on their issues, a good dad, but a bad husband, sick. And some of these things may be true, but they're not the fundamental problem that non-Christians have, according to Paul. The fundamental problem is that people who don't have a relationship with Jesus are spiritually dead. And dead people are by definition incapable of doing absolutely anything to better or improve their situation. And it's super important for us to understand this diagnosis as the true diagnosis for two reasons. First, if we don't properly diagnose the problem, we're going to look for solutions that end up being woefully inadequate. Right? If you have someone who has like throat cancer, and you're like, oh, it's a sore throat, just give them some Panadol. That's not going to fix the problem. It might make the pain a little bit better for a couple of hours, but the problem is just going to keep getting worse until you can be honest about what's actually wrong and you can diagnose the problem and you can give the proper treatment to make it better. For there to be any hope of a cure in this spiritual situation that the world is in, we need to be honest about the problem. And second, it's so important to be honest about the diagnosis because that helps give clarity about what it means to actually be a Christian. Right? In our world, there are lots of people who think to be a Christian means I go to church on Sundays, I try to live as a good person throughout the week. But if the fundamental problem of humanity is spiritual death, that picture of Christianity can't be accurate because no amount of good deeds can bring life to a corpse. If the true problem of humanity is spiritual death, then to be a Christian can't be about just showing up to church and being a good moral person. Actually, it's, it's possible to show up for church every single Sunday, maybe even to serve in church, to, to live a life full of good moral deeds and to still be spiritually dead. It's possible that there are corpses sitting in this room right now. If the true problem with humanity is spiritual death, then to be a Christian isn't just about going to church, being a good person. 
To be a Christian is about being a person who's experienced a resurrection. Nothing less can fix the problem. And that brings us to the good news. How does this resurrection take place? The two most amazing words in the Bible, but God. We were spiritually dead, but God. We were by nature children of wrath, but God. And just a quick side note on that. I know God's wrath is not popular in today's world. We tend to think that wrath and love cannot go together, but actually God's wrath is not opposed to his love. It's because of his love. Because God loves humanity, he hates evil. He hates anything that harms the people that he loves and he refuses to compromise with it. He's utterly resolved to wipe out all evil once and for all. And that means that, that he has to have anger and wrath against anything and anyone who hurts and harms the people he loves. And because all of us had aligned ourselves with the world that opposes God, with Satan who opposes God, all of us deserve to be under this judgment. That's what Paul is saying here when he says, we were by nature children of wrath, but God, because God is rich in mercy, because God loves us with a great love. Even when we were dead, he rescues us. And again, we saw this in Ephesians chapter one, but it's so important to remember, it's not that God the Father was angry with us and Jesus came to chill him out. God is the primary actor in our salvation. Yes, God has wrath against our sin and rebellion and God has wrath against the harm we bring to the world. But God himself took the initiative to deal with his own wrath by sending his son to rescue us. Did you ever realize God doesn't love you because Jesus died for you? Jesus died for you because God loves you. God doesn't love you because Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you because God loves you. And then he didn't stay dead. God raised him from the dead. And Paul is saying right here that, that if we are Christians, we are in Christ. We're connected to him in such a way that whatever is true of him is also true of us. And Paul wants us to get this. He wants us to get this really badly, so badly that he just makes up three words in this passage to help us understand it. He talks about how he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him. Each of those words is one word in Greek, and they are words that Paul made up, as far as we know, for this passage to help us understand how amazing it is to be connected to Jesus. Because if we are in Christ, if we're connected to Jesus, then what's true of him is true of us. God raised Jesus from the dead. Guess what? God raised Christians from their spiritual death with him. God exalted Jesus to heaven, not some physical place out there, but the realm where spiritual forces live and act and angels and demons and God operate. Well, guess what? God has exalted Christians to this place as well. God seated Jesus and gave him a place of authority in the heavenly places. Well, guess what? God has seated Christians in a place of authority with him. We were spiritually dead. We were incapable of helping ourselves, incapable of bringing life to ourselves. And God steps in and does all that we need to have life. He resurrects us. And not only does he resurrect us, but he brings us to a place of authority. And why does he do it? We see the answer in verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
In chapter one, Paul stacked together a bunch of big, extravagant language to help us understand how amazing God's blessings towards us are. And he's doing it again right here. It's not just grace, it's grace and kindness. There's immeasurable riches in Christ. Paul doesn't want us to miss how big and incredible and amazing this salvation is. And he doesn't want us to miss why God saved us. God saved us so he can show off his goodness and kindness throughout eternity. That's it. God saved us so he can show off his kindness and goodness throughout eternity. God wants us and all other Christians throughout all history and throughout the whole world and the non-Christians who refuse to trust in him and angels and demons and everything in all creation throughout the universe and history to see how amazingly good and generous and kind he is. That's why God saves us. And he demonstrates that goodness and generosity by giving us life when we deserve death and by continuing to bless us forever. And in case you missed it, this is entirely a gift. It's by grace, God's free gift of goodness to those who deserve the absolute opposite received through faith. Faith isn't just wishful thinking. It's belief based on the trustworthiness of the one we believe in. It's acting based on what you know of someone's character, taking their word because you know they're trustworthy. And that kind of trust is how we receive God's gift of grace. And again, this may shatter some ideas about what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is about a relationship with God, about being in Christ, connected to him so deeply in relationship that what's true of him is true of us. Some people think being a Christian is just about praying a prayer once. But if being a Christian is about being in Christ, having this living relationship with him, it can't just be about praying a prayer once. Others think that being a Christian is about whether you believe and accept some set of abstract ideas about God. And and yes, it is important to believe certain things about God in order to be a Christian, but we don't believe those things because simply believing these facts are true makes us a Christian. We believe these things because they help us to know God and being a Christian is about having that relationship with God. Yes, you need the foundation of truly understanding and knowing who God is, but you have that for the sake of a relationship, not simply for the sake of knowing facts. Being a Christian is about knowing God. It's about having a relationship with him. It's about being connected to Jesus so deeply that what's true of him is true of us, that God made him alive when he was dead, God makes us alive when we were dead. And Paul tells us in verse eight, it's the gift of God. What's the gift of God? Is the grace that saves us the gift of God? Or is the faith that receives that grace the gift of God? Yes. Grammatically in the Greek, it is the gift of God refers to the entire process of salvation. The grace that saves us and the faith that receives it are both gifts from God. I mean, think about it. The grace has to be a gift. That's sort of the definition of what grace is. It has to be undeserved and freely given in order to truly be grace. But the faith, we were dead. Dead people can't do anything, not even have faith. If you're going to have some spark of spiritual life to get that faith, you need God to make that spark in you. The whole process from start to finish is a gift from God. And that means there's no room for boasting. Some people are quite proud that they're Christians. They think their faith makes them better than others. But if you think that, you don't understand the gospel. The whole point of the gospel is that none of us is any better than anyone else. We were all dead. We were all completely unable to save ourselves. God saves us because he is good, not because we are good. 
It's not even a team effort, guys. It's all him. And if you're not a Christian, the fact that salvation is a gift is fantastic news for you. Here's why. It means there aren't huge hoops to jump through if you wanna become a Christian. You don't have to attend church for a certain amount of time before you can join the club. You don't have to fix all the problems in your life before God can accept you. I mean, did you read the first three verses here? Right? I don't care how badly you think, you think of yourself, like God's picture of you is probably more bleak than anything you would describe yourself as. And it's in that mess that he loves us and he sends Jesus to rescue us and he gives us life, not because we fix ourselves, but because he loves us. So all you have to do is trust that God really will forgive you and really will make you alive. And this gift is yours. You can move from death to life today and receive this gift. And when this gift becomes ours, what difference does it make in our lives? So what? Is all this teaching just a bunch of good theory or is it somehow supposed to impact the way we live? And verse 10 says it's supposed to impact our lives. Paul says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Obviously the first half of the passage says we weren't doing these things originally. We were spiritually dead, separated from God, following his enemies, joined to them. But God sets us on a new path. You see that line at the end of verse 10 that we should walk in them? In the New Testament, the verb to walk is often used to describe a way of living. And that Greek verb to walk actually shows up twice in this passage. In verse two, it talks about the way we once walked when we were following the course of the world, following Satan. But then in verse 10, we see that God has prepared good works for us to walk in. When God saves us, he sets us on a new path for life. He calls us to an entire new way of living. He saves us so we can live for him. And what does that new way of living look like? Well, this passage doesn't really tell us explicitly. That's what Paul's gonna unpack in the rest of Ephesians. So you gotta come back in the coming weeks, but don't worry. I'll give you a couple things that we can see implicitly from today's passage. And all of them flow out of this relationship with Christ, which you can see is one of our core values. And we're gonna have two takeaways. One that focuses on commission and one that focuses on community and calling. So we're going to hit all our core values today. First commission. If God prepared good works for us, that means that our faith is not just supposed to be a private thing between us and God. In our world, it's common to have this idea that my faith is just between me and God. It's sort of a private thing. I don't need to let anyone else know about it. But we just saw in verse seven, God saved us so he can show off his kindness through us. God's kindness is not being shown off if we keep our faith secret. The word in verse 10 for, for works means something that shows itself in action. If God made us for good works and he made us to live in a way that publicly shows the world his goodness. And that means that if you're doing this, you won't be keeping your faith private. You'll aim to let other people know about it. You'll aim to live in such a way that they can see through the way you live that this is really good news. Salvation calls us to a new path for life that includes, but is not limited to, sharing our faith with others. And then second, calling and community. If God prepared good works for us, presumably those good works are gonna look something like what God has done for us. Our calling to grow as followers of Jesus means learning to live like Jesus lived and, and like God has treated us. And what did God do for us? Well, we just saw he brought reconciliation and life to a dead relationship, completely at his own initiative and completely at his own expense. God brought reconciliation and life 
to a dead relationship. He took the lead in making it happen. He paid the price to make it happen. If we're Christians, if we're in Christ, what's true of him is true of us. God created us for good works. Surely one of those major good works that God has for us is to be people who bring reconciliation and life to dead relationships. I'm not saying that's gonna be easy, like relationships typically die and get broken because of genuine hurt. It's costly to bring reconciliation in broken relationships. It's gonna be hard sometimes. It's gonna be uncomfortable sometimes, but guess what? God is not oblivious to the cost. He had to pay a great price to reconcile us to himself. It costs the death of Jesus. If God went to such extremes to reconcile us to himself when we were his enemies, what can we do to seek reconciliation in our relationships? Is there someone you can pick up the phone today and, and call just to try and start that process of reconciliation? Is there someone who irritates you that you can start treating with kindness? Maybe you're not even at that point. Maybe it's just starting with prayer, praying for someone, not just that God would change them, but that he would give you in your heart love and patience towards them and kindness for them. And I know sometimes reconciliation isn't possible because people just don't want to be reconciled, but God calls us to take the initiative to try. He calls us to bear the cost of apologizing or forgiving if necessary, and then we can leave the results in his hands. But if we're truly in Christ, then working towards reconciliation in our relationships is going to be one of the key good works that God has for us. And again, even these good works don't are in favor with God. They don't make him love us more. Even the ability to do these good works comes from God. He, he gave us the ability to do this as a gift. He prepared these good works for us in advance. So we still have no room for boasting, no matter how well we're doing in our obedience. But what a blessing that, that we get to join God in this work that we've been talking about, that Jesus is doing of uniting all things, bringing restoration and reconciliation to the universe. So church, there's bad news. You were dead, but there's incredible good news that God couldn't stop loving you. So he made you alive. He gave you a relationship with himself simply so he can show off how good and generous and amazing and kind he is. And now that we have a new identity, God calls us to a new way of living, doing good works. Will you live on this new path that God has for you this week? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we often don't believe the truth that you say about us and the world around us. We don't believe that we live in a world where so many people are spiritually dead. We think we're fine and everyone else is fine. And that leads us to live in ways that harm others. It leads us to live in ways that are opposed to you. And God, forgive us for that. We thank you and we praise you that you are a God who loves us. Even when we were dead, even when we were rebels, even when we were bringing harm to people, you can't stop loving us and that you reconciled us. We pray that that would just fill us with amazement and awe, that we would be in wonder of the fact that you could rescue us like that. Pray that you would help us to be a church that does good works, that loves the people around us, who is kind, who's generous, who's seeking reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen.